Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. So just three brief verses, but also verses that are really important and oftentimes get missed. These uh, sort of, uh, these, these sort of uh, salutations and then greetings and then uh, kind of in, in their letters, these, these endings that are, that are kind of thrown in and you kind of feel like, oh, it's just a, a formality of sorts, but it's really not a formality. There's, there's something to learn from the way that the Apostle Paul and James and Jude and Peter end, open and end their letters. And the hope this morning is that we can glean something from his final greetings in this first letter. So we're ending our series this morning called Belong on the church and its significance in the life of a follower of Jesus. And we've looked at belong for, the, for God so loved the world that he died for her. That's the, the theological impetus. That's why we need to belong to the church because Jesus died for the church. He loved the church so much. Belong for the good of others. Belong for your own soul. Belong for your appointed leaders. And then belong for the fame of Jesus last week. And this morning we look at belong for your forever peace. Belong for your forever peace. I want to begin with a statement, one that could be debated, especially in a 2023 American culture that essentially says church attendance or belonging to a church is sort of antiquated which many would say, or it is unnecessary in your engagement and relationship with Jesus. But one that I believe in this statement, I'm going to try and build a case for in the next few minutes. Here it is. The extent of experienced peace in your life will be commensurate. Commensurate means corresponding and proportion to. So let me say it again. The extent of experienced peace in your life will be commensurate to the extent of connectedness you have with other believers. The extent of experienced peace in your life will be commensurate to the extent of connectedness you have with other believers, Christ followers. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says this, Aim for restoration, comfort one another, Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you all, he writes to the church in Corinth. One of the sweetest words in the Hebrew language is the word shalom, meaning peace. Um, my dad actually pastored a church in Hutchinson called Shalom Baptist Church um, that I totally forgot, and so I looked it up. And they changed their name. It's now Cross Point. Did you know that? You knew that? It's called Cross Point Church. But the word shalom is a really beautiful word. So I sort of wish they hadn't changed the name to Cross Point. Cross, the cross of Christ, of course, is beautiful as well. But shalom communicates a very specific sense of peace. One of my commentaries said, nothing out of place, everything as it ought to be. That's shalom. Harmony, not conflict. Order, not chaos. Rest, not restlessness. Perfect peace between man 
and man, man, and woman, woman, and woman, God, and us, shalom. It's the picture we're given in Genesis 1 and 2. We didn't get very far before that shalom was fractured and broken. But it's the picture we're given. And it's the same picture we're given in Revelation 21 and 22 at the very end of the Bible. It goes full circle. Do you realize this? That's where we are headed. All of creation is headed back to the perfect shalom and peace and harmony we have with God in the garden. We know something, though. We're not there Yet, the entrance of sin through Adam's disobedience disrupted this shalom. Tension and division resulted, not just between him and his maker, but also with Eve, with whom he had just been joined together as one flesh. Like That didn't last very long. It led also to his being at odds with the creation over which God had placed him and given him dominion over. From that moment on, church, earth, the very earth that we are living on and sitting in or on right now became the center of the universal conflict that has been raging ever since. Thankfully, God didn't wait for Adam to find the antidote to his failure because he would never find that antidote. God knew that Adam would try and try and try and that you and I would try and try and try and try and try and find that antidote or that solution to the lost shalom and to the lost peace. But he also knew in his wisdom that we would never find it or never be able to make right what had, been gone, what had gone so terribly wrong. And so he provided what was needed to satisfy his own justice. Firstly, God, in the immediate, God covered Adam and Eve with garments of animal skin. That would be the first introduction of sacrifice for sin. That image of them being covered in animal skin. God would then later put in place a sacrificial system detailed in Leviticus 16. In that system, on the Day of Atonement, two young goats and a bull would be selected. One goat and bull were slaughtered, and the second goat would have, would have had the sins of Israel transferred to it in a ceremony that um, would then lead this goat out into the wilderness, representing the sins of the people being taken away. There's the scapegoat. Tradition, tradition has it that often the youth of the tribe... Uh, would follow that goat to ensure that it did not survive, and then more tradition has it they would follow it maybe even accidentally off a cliff to make sure it did not return to the tribe with the sins of the, peop- of the people. The deaths of the animals pointed to the ultimate sacrificial death by which God would one day deal finally and fully with sin, the death of Jesus himself. Why was all of this necessary? Shalom had been lost. That's why. Peace had been lost. The relationship fractured, and God's chosen means for reestablishing the shalom was sacrifice. So fast forward to the New Testament some 2,000 years ago from the mouth of Jesus Knowing his days were few, 
Jesus himself promised the Holy Spirit would come to be a comfort and a helper. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is Jesus looking towards his death, knowing that he was no longer going to be there, promising a helper, promising the Holy Spirit to be the comfort and peace that we also desperately need. Then after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus spent many days on earth meeting with many people. The greeting of peace from Jesus is used only three times after his resurrection, two of which were in John 20, verse 19. It says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors behind, I'm sorry, the doors being locked where the disciples were because they were fearing the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them. I actually love that it references the door was locked and then Jesus stands among them. The door was locked and Jesus appears to them post-resurrection Jesus coming into the presence of his disciples as they're behind a locked door. And he says to them, peace be with you. He then showed them his hands and his side, and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So we've gone from perfect peace in Adam and Eve to quickly losing that peace to a sacrificial system that was put in place to restore the peace between God and man to Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice that would once and for all restore shalom and peace between God and man. All along the way, we, church, have been the ones guilty of fracturing that shalom and that peace and breaking that shalom and peace, and God has been the one responsible for restoring it. After Jesus' ascension, he leaves his apostles, namely Peter, as the one to establish the church, to grow the church, to build the church. In the epistles alone, the word peace is used some 70 times in reference to the church. And that we, as the people of God, the body of Christ, the family of God, are to experience the peace of Christ. And so I want us to see this, church, that God has made it clear from the outset. I want you to hear this. This is sort of the thesis again, just phrased differently. God has made it clear from the outset that his intention for the world and for the human race was shalom, peace, the restored relationship with him, and that it would be reflected in and through restored relationships between his redeemed people. That's how it's reflected to the world, through the church. That's sort of our biblical and theological and ecclesiological study of the church basis for belonging to one another for the purpose of peace, making, peace, keeping, peace, experiencing as we participate in God's cosmic peace plans. I wanted to give that up front. So three points this morning. Peace comes from, just so you know where we're going, 
Peace comes from fellowship with the saints. Peace comes from the true grace of God. And peace comes from being hid in Christ or hidden in Christ. All of those come from Peter's final greetings in his first letter. Let me read it for us. 1 Peter 5, 12, 13, and 14. By Silvanus, also called Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. So Peter, writing from Rome to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, again, we've said this repeatedly, during exile and during persecution. He says, stand firm. He references Silvanus as a faithful brother and Mark as a spiritual son. Then says, greet one another with the kiss of love. And so Peter here we see in these three verses has a brother in the faith, has a spiritual son in the faith, is writing to a greater family. And he finishes with peace to all of you. Here's a question. What happens when this isn't the case in the church? When the church has been guilty of the opposite, when the church has contributed to maybe your lack of peace or your lack of rest or your lack of shalom, when, when you have no brother or son or family-like relationship, the thought of a kiss of love, out of the question. See, while we're in First Peter, we can see many of the reasons for the New Testament epistles being written to the unique churches was for this very reason, to address their proclivity to tensions and divisions and disunity and lack of peace. In fact, the book of James is devoted pretty much entirely to this. James addresses dissensions in the church. He addresses false teaching, which would have caused all sorts of issues. He addresses class distinctions. He addresses gossip and complete misunderstandings regarding the gospel, all of which would have contributed significantly to a lack of peace. Corinth was divided over church teachers. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, for one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Apollos. What, he writes, after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you come to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. 
So again, what do we do in the church when it is supposed to be a place of peace, an environment, I say this about my own household a lot, that we really want to cultivate an environment of peace. Same is true for the church. But what do we do in the church when we don't view it that way, we don't experience it that way, What do we do when fellowship with the saints isn't reflecting the unity and shalom that Jesus intended for it to? James actually gives us the solution, and it feels very practical, and I love this, and it's so helpful. Here's the solution. Here's the antidote. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. There's lack of peace. There's there's tension. There's disunity. Confess your sin. I'm sinning against you, brother, because I'm feeling this way towards you. And then pray, he says, for one. Have you ever tried to, to, to feel disgruntled or angry or towards someone who you're also simultaneously praying for? Very hard. Very hard. Pray for one another so you may be healed. And Paul gives a more theological answer. Paul just straight up says, you know what the answer is? Christ crucified. That's what Paul says. That's the answer. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1.20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's really why lack of peace even comes to the surface is because we all think we're so wise. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, here's what he writes, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. In other words, the divisions cease. The stress and tension and rough waters settle when you keep the main thing, the main thing, Christ crucified. And so church, fellowship with the saints, your engagement with each other, your relationships with each other and with myself and with anybody within the church is unique only in that it is centered on the person and work of Christ. That's the glue. I heard Jackie Hill Perry actually just this week on one of her Instagram posts say, um, she said, "I'm I'm at this point in my life where if they don't say Jesus, I don't want it. You can say God, but which God? You can say Lord, but which Lord? You can say King, but which King? Peter agrees. Paul agrees. James agrees. Christ crucified is the non-negotiable shalom bond that we have with God and with each other. Apart from that, when we begin to operate in the flesh, Without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus at the center, there is absolutely nothing unique about our engagement with one another. Fellowship that is centered on the gospel, though, produces what Peter had with many, which is why he could say, my dear brother, my son, greet one another with a kiss of love. What does that fellowship look like for you? Have you 
ex- experienced that sort of fellowship and peace within the body of Christ? Do you know it? This sort of experienced peace that Peter, writing from Rome to persecuted churches, could still communicate, that it's still possible. And within your relationships, that the pressure is off in the church of Jesus Christ. Your relationships with one another should be the most freeing, joyful, loving, restful, and peaceful relationships you have because they aren't based on your performance but on Christ crucified. Paul speaks of Christ having broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. By his death, Jesus ushered in a whole new epoch in worship history that we together, collectively, with, with no barriers, who have experienced peace with God and peace with each other, no barriers, no race, culture, background barriers. This is the blessing made visible between God and his redeemed community, and it's possible and it's accessible because of what Christ has done. Secondly, peace from the true grace of God. Grace is, um, you've probably heard it said, is grace is undeserved favor. If you're not aware of this already, most everything you do, you do subconsciously to earn favor, to earn welcome, to earn acceptance. Grace is favor despite. Right? Even the analogy of, of parents doesn't work here when we talk about the grace of God because we too, as much as we love our kids, have certain conditions. Grace, true grace that Peter refers to here at the end, has only one condition. Faith that your own work won't cut it but that Christ does completely. And so Peter says, I have written to you about the true grace of God. Have you tasted it? Do you know it? Has it liberated you? Has it freed you? Does it bring you peace? The author of Hebrews makes this connection. He says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What do you draw near to? The throne of grace. Why? To receive grace in times of need. Talk about experienced peace. Peter says, church, this is what sets you apart. No other religion tells this story. 
No other spiritual system frees you the way Christianity can. And so church, Peter ends, stay in the true grace of God in Christ and your peace will be great. Lastly, peace from being hid in Christ. Paul, right into the Colossians in chapter 3, he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. <clears throat> what does it mean to be hid in Christ? It means that you are, um, you, you, are, you are kept in him. The church of Jesus Christ is kept in him. Peter ends his letter with, um, I'm going to paraphrase it here, there is a special peace but he gives the qualifier for those who are in Christ. That's unavailable, inaccessible for those who are outside of that. Yes, there is an earthly peace that you can know, but of course, the most significant is an eternal forever peace that you will know as well. Would have been the comfort, especially, especially for these second generation Christians being persecuted. Author Mark Johnston writes, if we are the blood-bought children of God through Christ, then not only are we joined to Jesus in saving union, but we are simultaneously united to all of his children. We are all one in him. We are hid in him. I don't know why I picked a quote with two children's, because I can't say that word. I was going to say kids, but, yeah, if you know, you know. That was a couple of weeks ago I think I referenced that. It's just a hard word to say. I don't know why. Can you say it? Children? <laughs> Children. But I, I do want you to see this. So he goes on and says this. He says, the theater, I love the picture, the imagery here. The theater in which God has chosen to display this blessing is his redeemed community, the church. That's the theater in which God has chosen to display this peace blessing his redeemed community, the church. That is, as men and women, boys and girls, find pardon and peace with God through his redeeming grace, their relationships with one another are transformed by that same grace. Isn't that good? I gotta read it again. The, this is, as men and women, boys and girls, find pardon and peace with God through his redeeming, transforming grace their relationships with one another are transformed by that very same grace. We are no longer estranged from God and at, at odds with his will and with each other. We are reconciled to him and he to us. This is the most glorious thing a sinner can know, that through Christ, those who are aliens and outcasts are brought near to God and know him as their God and Father. Isaiah actually identifies him as the 
prince of that peace. And so as you wrap up, how does this translate to our relationships with one another as members of his church, as those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ, specifically here at Christ Church? If we are all hid in Christ, if we are all one in him, that again, all the ethnic, social, and other barriers that divide our fallen race are absolutely demolished, destroyed, unacceptable within the church of Jesus Christ. We then are enabled to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, Romans 15, 7. One of the greatest marks of the church, one of the greatest marks of the true church of Jesus Christ, an open-armed welcome to come, to know, to experience the peace, the true grace and peace of God in Christ. I want to belong to this sort of church. And I'm confident that this is the sort of church that Jesus is building here in our midst. Before I invite Adam up uh, for communion, I just want to take a minute to introduce something we have coming up. Uh, We have a campaign coming up.